Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Operation Pastorius. This is uh, this is a small chapter of Second World War history that doesn't get a lot of attention usually. So we're gonna we're gonna fix that today. Uh, in a nutshell, it's a story about when the Nazis sent two small groups of saboteurs to the United States with orders to blow up factories and bridges and and whatever else they could to uh, to disrupt U.S. industry. Uh, this was a story that was suggested to me uh, suggested as a topic by alert listener Brock McDonald. So thanks so much, Brock, and also thank you. Uh, to all the other listeners who send in suggestions, I think Brock sent in uh, quite a couple, but uh, this is the one that really uh, really piqued my interest here, so I was very, very pleased to get across this one. And uh, it's because the twists and the turns in this story, utterly ridiculous. Really, really some very, very silly stuff going on with this. So, uh, you know, it just, it's just a good old-fashioned spy story, to be honest. Um, and and it's, it, it really has huge sort of... Uh, stranger than fiction type uh, type vibes to it to be honest uh, so eight blokes in all were transported by a submarine across the atlantic to on this uh, sabotage sabotage mission uh and then after you know all sorts of complications and adventures they eventually ended up with the fbi on their tails and look to be honest i went pretty deep on this whole thing oops uh it was meant to only be one episode but it's going to be really long so we're going to split it up and do two uh, two week episodes across two weeks this time uh because yeah as i say it's a little bit of a long one so let's not waste any more time let's get to it let's have a chat about operation pastorius and and, and what it was all about so we're going all the way back to april 1942 here april 1942 the Second World War, of course, already well and truly underway. The United States has finally turned up, ready to go. In 1941, they joined the war. Obviously, it started in 1939. And we're also at a point now where the, the entrance of the United States into the war is actually starting to become a bit of a problem for, for the Nazis. To begin with, you know, they, they weren't exactly sure how the U.S. the U.S. century to the war would impact the, the war. But now there's starting to be, uh, you know, a couple of concerns about exactly how things are going to pan out here. Because the United States uh, didn't really have the military might to stand up to the Nazis to begin with. That wasn't the concern. That wasn't what uh, what the Nazis were worried about. You know, the, the, the size of the German military was and, and its strength, its training, its manpower was enor- it enormously outstripped the United States at the, at the when, when they joined the war. It wasn't so much that it was the manufacturing; it was the it was the resources, the war material. It was the uh, it was the uh, the the fact that they'd be able to bring more in, in terms of industry, manufacturing, production, that sort of stuff. Because of course, you know, the United States wasn't a war torn wasteland like much of mainland Europe. So that was that was the first thing on the Nazis' minds when they were thinking about the entrance of the United States into the war. And this explains the backdrop now of a very important meeting that took place in April 1942 uh, between the chief of uh, of the Nazi military intelligence, uh, an office called the Abwehr. This was a bloke named Wilhelm or Wilhelm Canaris. So Canaris was an admiral, and then he was he worked as part of, as as you know as the head of the Abwehr. And he met with Hitler in Hitler's so-called Wolf's Lair encampment in what is now Poland. If if you've ever, uh, if you if you've heard or you know if you've, if you've paid attention to any of the, of the stuff about the July Plot and Klaus von Stauffenberg, who uh, tried to put a bomb under uh, under a desk or a meeting table that uh, that Hitler was sat at, that took place in the in the Wolfschanze as well in the in the Wolf's Lair. So pretty important place in you know in twentieth century history generally, and this this is where our story begins because it's here that uh, Canaris 
reveals a plan that he's put, he's cooked up here uh, to Hitler. So the plan that he's got is to recruit, train up, and send a group of saboteurs into the United States to blow up, as I say, factories, bridges, uh, whatever else they, they really could. And as I say, Hitler and the other higher-ups in the Nazi party, they knew that US manufacturing is what was going to win the war in the long run. Eventually, even if they weren't outmanned, they would eventually be outgunned, the Nazis, by the fact that the United States could just continue to produce, you know, planes and tanks and, and, and guns and bullets and whatever else. And so uh, Hitler and, you know, many of the other people who are in charge of the Nazi party, they were, they were pretty keen on, on hearing ideas like this, anything that was, you know, going to try to interfere with the production and the manufacture of the United States. So after getting approval from Hitler, Canaris very quickly put the plan into action. He organized the recruitment and the training of a group of saboteurs uh, that would obviously then be sent over the United States to go and wreak havoc. Now, this whole affair was codenamed Operation Pastorius, as I say, and it was named after Francis Daniel Pastorius, or Francis Daniel Pastorius, if we're you know, going to dispense with a pretentious German accent here, uh, who was the founder of the first permanent German settlement. Now, you're never going to believe what this settlement was called, by the way. Francis Daniel Pastorius, he showed off the, the great creative energy of his people by naming the town that he founded, which, let's not forget, was a town principally for Germans. He named it Germantown. So, yeah, great one. Well done, Pastorius. Anyway, Operation Pastorius, it kicked off properly, as I say, 1942, in April 1942, when a group of men who had been recruited by the Abwehr were sent to a farm that was next to the town of Brandenburg, which is about an hour's drive outside Berlin, right? And this farm, it was actually, a, a, it was just a, a, a disguising a, a Nazi uh, espionage crash course. It wasn't a farm at all. It was made to look like one, of course, but it wasn't one. Uh, inside this so-called farm, there were shooting ranges, there were explosive pits, there were chemical laboratories, there was even a gym. So, you know, the people training there could get huge. Um, and locals in Brandenburg and around the area here, they knew to ignore the farm and to keep their heads down. It used to belong to a, uh, a wealthy Jewish shoemaker, but it had been seized and handed over to the Abwehr. Uh, which, uh, you know, obviously was pretty much par for the course in those days. A lot of stuff like that happened and, and, and people were encouraged and, and very heavily incentivized not to pay too much attention to things going on, uh, like, you know, w w like that sort of thing, lest the uh, the wrath of the Nazis come down on their heads as well. So pretty, pretty miserable time, pretty desperate time back then, of course, but uh, that was just the way that it went, unfortunately. Now, the training of these saboteurs was overseen by a bloke named Lieutenant Walter Kapper, uh, who was this great big fat fella who had pushed the Nazi agenda in the US before the war. He was quite familiar with the United States. He's lived there for a long time. He had a lot of contacts over there, a lot of, you know, contacts who were sympathetic towards Hitler and the Nazis. And he's very familiar with American, uh, you know, American customs and culture. And as were, it's worth pointing out, the, the men that he was in charge of training. That's why they'd been selected, right? All of these would-be saboteurs. They'd lived and worked in the United States for varying lengths of time. And all of them could speak de decent English and, and sort of, you know, at least pass themselves off as, uh, you know, if not as Americans, but people who had lived there or, you know, for all intents and purposes were quote-unquote American, even if they were German-American, right? Now, uh, a couple of these blokes had been with Hitler and the Nazis. A couple of these would-be saboteurs. They'd been with Hitler and the Nazis since near the beginning. Uh, the first 100,000 uh, Nazi Party members, they wore little gold buttons on their uniforms, and this was a huge status symbol as they'd been there, you know, been there from more or less the start. Kappa was one of these people, and some of the actual saboteurs were as well. We'll go through them. There are 11 of them in all. 11, 11, of, 11 of these blokes were brought over to this farm, uh, quote-unquote farm, and, uh, and, and, you know, were, were trained up. 
uh, and we'll go through them very quickly here. So there was Ernst Peter Berger, who had uh, he was he'd been there right since the start. He'd brawled on the street during the beer hall putsch, uh, and then he'd moved to the United States in the years after. He had agreed to be part of Operation Pastorius as part of a release deal after he'd been imprisoned by the Gestapo for criti- uh, for, for criticizing them. He'd been sent to a, cro- a concentration camp for criticizing the Gestapo. So he was this was part of his sort of rehabilitation deal here. There was Georg John Dash, who had uh, he was the most senior of the saboteurs. He was kind of kind of the second in command after Kappa there, uh, and he'd lived in the United States for twenty years. That was one of the reasons that he was uh, sort of uh, you know one of the ringleaders there. He was uh, apparently he talked like a steam engine, but you know he had very good English. He was very familiar with American culture, slang, lifestyle, that sort of stuff. He's probably one of the more convincing, uh, you know, one of the people who's going to be able to sell the sell the lie the best. There was Edvard Kerling, who had been with the Nazis again since more or less the beginning, although he had also moved uh, to the United States uh, throughout the 30s. In 1939, he tried to sneak across the Atlantic on a small ship uh, to get back to, you know, to fight in the Second World War for the Nazis. Uh, This was in violation of the American Neutrality Act, and he'd been caught uh, by the Coast Guard on his way out. Him and some of his friends were just on a small boat. Uh, and so he had, he was forced to go back into the United States and he had to um, uh, get all his papers and actually leave legally instead uh, rather than trying to sneak across the uh, the Atlantic. There was Howby Haupt, who was the youngest of all of these fellas. He was only 22 and he was the most American of all of them. He'd been born there. He'd gro- grown up there. His English was better than his German. Uh, he was a real boozy bugger and he loved his women and he'd escaped the United States to Germany via Mexico, Japan, Cape Horn, and finally running British blockades along the Atlantic, something that actually got, he got the Iron Cross for. There was, there was Richard Quirin and Heinrich Heink, who seemed to be best mates. They were very close. They both worked for VW together. There was Hermann Neubauer, who was an aloof, untalkative gangster type by the, by the, by the description of his, uh, of his colleagues there. Uh, he had uh, pieces of metal shrapnel embedded in his head as it was a, a, a lasting injury that had been done to him while fighting uh, the Russians, right? He still had shrapnel quite literally lodged in his head as a result of uh, fighting on the Eastern Front there. There was Werner Thiel, who apparently dressed like garbage and didn't speak very much, spoke in a slow monotone. There was another bloke called Josef Schmidt, who was uh, this enormous big fellow with a high-pitched voice. He'd worked in Canada as a hunter and a trapper. He didn't talk much, but he had a hot temper apparently. There was Ernst Zuber, who was highly strung and impossible to understand in both German and English. And the last bloke was a fellow known only as Scotty, who apparently looked and acted like a Scotsman. And even as someone who lives in Scotland today, I don't exactly know what that means. I don't know if he just had ginger hair and, you know, was always sucking back iron brew. I don't know what why Scotty was called Scotty, but uh, both him and Ernst didn't actually make it through saboteur school. They actually got booted out about halfway through. They, they, they were, yeah, they were cut. So we don't have to worry too much about them. Anyway, the rest of them, they're all given lessons on sabotage and spycraft. They're taught how to build and detonate explosives, including, you know, some real James Bond types type stuff. They learn how to make a small block of TNT look like a lump of coal or make a fuse out of dried peas. And they also got grilled each week by Kappa on their respective backstories. Now, some of them, like Heinrich Heinke, 
were absolutely atrocious at this. They kept forgetting or stuffing up their backstories, which, you know, as a result became simpler and simpler to make it even easier for them. But even after they were reduced to, you know, really bare bones type stuff, it still didn't work. And Kappa just kind of gave up on some of them and told Dash to fix it when they got to the United States. Maybe, you know, fill in the gaps in the story once they got there. Which honestly seems a lot like trying to revise for an exam as you're walking through the door of the exam hall, to be honest. But, you know, that's the way they chose to play it. And we'll find out exactly how that worked out for them. And uh, actually, speaking of exams, there was an actual exam at the end of this whole course here. They were, they were, they were trained for five weeks. And at the end of it, they were paired off and given assignments around the farm. They had to build and set off bombs while soldiers, you know, patrolled, quote unquote, around and they guarded the targets that they'd been given. A whole mock exercise there like that. Um, and only one pair, Berger and Schmidt, actually managed to successfully blow something up. But uh, despite this, despite the, uh, you know, the failure of the rest of them, Kappa still called the whole thing a big success and said that these blokes were ready to go because, you know, they tried. They did their best and they gave it a red hot go. So... They were then given their real targets in the United States. Well, now they've all graduated from uh, from from sabotage school, or, or nine of them. I did remember the other two got booted off, but nine of them are, are ready to go there. They're given their real targets. They're given maps and photos and the like, and they're they're ordered to blow up, as I say, bridges, railroads, and and factories. But in particularly, in particular, they want them to blow up aluminium plants. Aluminium was the main ingredient. Ingredient? Sure. It's the main ingredient, whatever, that the chefs were using to make aircraft. It's the, you know, it was very light, very tough. And uh, and as a result, it was very important uh, for the uh, for the for the US war effort. And, and that was the primary target of these uh, of Operation Pastorius was going after and uh, and disrupting the uh, the the aluminium industry. And, you know, based on that, I guess they should have probably sent some millennials because, you know, apparently we're quite good at disrupting industries. But these nine remaining blokes, they're split into two groups. One is led by Dash and the other is led by Curling. They're blokes in Dash's group. There's Berger, Schmidt, Quirin and Hank. They couldn't believe it because they bloody hated Dash. Uh, they thought he was an idiot loudmouth who couldn't be trusted. Uh, and they actually went to Kappa in secret, uh, therefore, to ask what to do with anyone who they suspected of, be- of betraying the operation. And Kappa told them that anyone who they thought was going to turn traitor would have to be killed then and there. There's no questions asked. Anyone who was going to turn a traitor should be executed on the spot. Uh, but uh, it's safe to say that uh, Dash wasn't very well liked by the people that he was in charge of. Uh, and then, of course, the other the other four there was uh, there was Kerling, Thiel, Neubauer, and Haupt. They were that was the second group. So there's group of five and group of four, and they're both they're, they're going to uh, be divided up, sent in submarines across the other side of the Atlantic. There, um, but before this uh, before this all happened. The saboteurs were given two weeks furlough here. They're given two weeks off uh, before their trip across the Atlantic. And uh, during this time, Dash and Curling as the group leaders, uh, they had more training with stuff like Invisible Ink, as well as a a tour of a German aluminium factory to see how things were inside. Uh, The rest of them, however, they all went off, visited their family, visited their friends, their wives, their girlfriends, whatever else, and, and got ready for their trip. But on the 18th of May, 1942, all of the saboteurs, they rejoined Kappa and the final preparations were made for the journey. The saboteurs, they signed documents that surrendered them to strict secrecy. They weren't allowed to communicate with their families anymore at all. Uh, they were clothed in civilian clothing, clothing that had tragically been taken from Jews that had been sent to concentration camps. And it was you know, obviously, again, a, a great tragedy. Uh, and they were also given a, send, uh, given a set of German Navy uniforms, which you might think is a little odd for, you know, a covert espionage operation, sending them over in, you know, with, with uniforms that clearly demonstrated that they were, they were Nazis. But you'll understand why they, they had these uniforms uh, just a little later on here. 
Additionally, they received uh, fake USIDs, social security cards, draft cards, all that sort of stuff, and documents to support their uh, respective backst- uh, fake backstories there. And they were also issued with crates of explosives and the materials to make more. And so they're all kitted out and ready to go. The last thing they were given was just stacks and stacks of money. Just almost almost $200,000, $180,000 in stone cold cash, which these days would be worth about $2 million bucks. So this was an enormous amount of money. That was a huge amount of Skrilladilla that was given to these saboteurs as they made their preparations to head across the ocean here. Now, Dash and Curling, they made arrangements that when the groups landed in their respective areas, one was going to go to New York, the other one was going to go to Florida. After having landed and set themselves up, they were going to meet in Cincinnati on the 4th of July. Obviously, you know, there'd be a lot of the, the, the Independence Day celebrations would be, uh, would be rife. And again, there's a, I guess there's a little bit of irony to that there. But, uh, you know, the, the 4th of July celebrations, I guess, would be a good cover for, for you know, a clandestine meeting like that. Everyone's going to be busy and, and, and whatever else. Anyway, as I say... One of the groups, Stash's group, they're going to head to New York, to Long Island. And uh, Cowling's group, on the other hand, is going to, uh, going to head to Florida. Now, Curling was actually quite familiar with the, Flor- with the uh, Floridian coastline because that was where he had made his uh, ill-fated attempt to escape to, uh, to Nazi Germany in 1939. So he actually knew his way around that area quite well. And, you know, as well, uh, I think Dash had a level of familiarity with, uh, with Long Island and the Hampton region, where uh, the Hamptons there, where, which is obviously where they, uh, they plan to land there. So they've still got to, cross, got to get across the Atlantic, however. And I mentioned already that they are planning to do it via submarine. But before that, they've got to get to the coast. Now, of course, most of France is occupied uh, by the Nazis and they're going to leave from a French port. So the first stop, the first uh, first sort of little trip they make is a railroad, a, a train trip uh, from Berlin to Paris. And it's in Paris that they stay for the weekend. And there, I will tell you this, these blokes let loose and they go a bit mental. They go actually a fair bit mental. They, you wouldn't quite believe how mental they go, to be honest. They go out in the town, they get on the source, and they all get drunk as skunks. One of them, Hank, got so drunk, he was pissed out of his head, and he started boasting loudly in a Parisian bar about being a Nazi secret agent, which isn't typically a well-respected or a, a you know a, a very a very approved move for any secret agent to sort of do there it's not exactly out of a you know 007 handbook or whatever else but that's what he did another bloke got himself in trouble you remember the younger bloke helped who uh, you know he did like his women he picked up a girl and took her back to the hotel and then got a world or got in a world of trouble when um uh, afterwards i suppose you could say uh she demanded that he pay up for um services rendered i suppose you'd put it now he had no idea that he'd picked up a prostitute he thought that it had you know just been his natural charm and his piercing blue eyes or whatever uh he thought they'd done the trick but no he he just he'd picked up a sex worker and was now refusing to pay and so she starts to make a huge scene she's bloody screaming at him in french and making a great big hullabaloo until some of the other saboteurs they hear this and they come out and they actually pay uh pay her on his behalf and send her on her way so you know not to draw too much attention to them there Anyway, they've had a wild weekend in Paris, all nine of them, and after this, uh, you know, nursing their hangovers, they then travel to uh, Lorient, which is a a town on the coast where they would uh, be meeting the U-boats that would take them across the Atlantic. Now, the Abwehr had done a bit of a deal with the uh, with the Nazi Navy here. They'd got in touch with Karl Dönitz, who was the commander-in-chief of the Navy, and they'd they'd cut him out a little deal because he he didn't want to use his U-boats as uh, as basically a glorified 
transport service there and he was quite reluctant to let these saboteurs on board and just f- and ferry them over to the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, he, his U-boats were doing such a good job of, sh- of sinking Allied ships that, that, you know, he didn't really want to distract them from that. But eventually he was persuaded, he'd agree to this plan and so these blokes were going to get stuffed into these tiny little submarines and they're going to get taken across the ocean there like that. But after arriving in Lorient to, uh, you know, to get on board these submarines, things did not go smoothly here for Operation Pastorius, I can tell you that because there were a whole host of issues before they even got on the sub, before they even saw the submarines, and that's putting it quite lightly here. Dash, who again is in charge of one of these groups here, this super spy, do you know what he does? He leaves all these papers on the train. Yep, all the papers he had about his role as a secret agent, the plan in the US, all the fo- all the, fo- the false documentation. You know, what a secret agent this bloke is. He's left these hot papers on the train there like that. And when he went to retrieve them, when he went, you know, snuck back into the rail yard to try to get them off of the train that he left them on, he was caught by the Gestapo. So Kappa, the lieutenant, had to come and retrieve him from the Gestapo, explain what he was doing, just sneaking around looking through trains there like that, right? But then they couldn't find the papers. They searched high and low for them, but they were just gone. They were missing, never never to be seen again. So now these two idiots, they had to decide what they'd do now that Dash didn't have his counterfeit US documents on which he was Georg John or John Davis, or George John John Davis was the fake name that he'd, uh, that he'd chosen there. Now, Dash suggested changing his name, which is a, you know, a sensible choice, uh, you know, seeing as there was a fake set of US documents floating about somewhere that, that you know, outed this George John Davis as a, as a Nazi spy. But his suggestion, what he wanted to change his name to, was George John Day, which is perhaps not the most inspired choice, I guess you'd say. Uh, and the problems didn't stop there. The problems didn't stop there. Some of the saboteurs had examined the US money that they'd been given. You remember they were given uh, you know, $180,000 in cash. They'd examined some of it and discovered that a bunch of these banknotes was old money that had been withdrawn from circulation almost 10 years ago in 1934 when the United States had abandoned the gold standard. It was These were banknotes that weren't valid anymore. I mean, if they were caught using these notes that had been out of circulation for nearly 10 years, it definitely it would have raised a hell of a lot of, of suspicion. So these saboteurs, they're pissed as hell because they're thinking, you know, they've been set up for failure here by the people who were, who were kidding them out with, you know, money that basically outs them as, as people who haven't been in the United States for nearly 10 years. They actually ended up just chucking out the the dud notes. They actually just, you know, threw them in the bin, which, you know, did make a bit of a dent in the fortune that they'd been given, but it was just dead weight otherwise, this money. So I guess just they better better ridding themselves of it. And there was one uh, there was one last and, and pretty hilarious complication before the saboteurs finally boarded the waiting submarines there in Lorient. So Schmidt, you remember him? He was the big outdoorsman who'd been in Canada. He reported that he thought he had caught some kind of venereal disease. And as all of these idiots had been, you know, they'd gone mental and torn up the town in Paris and had made a bunch of uh, rather questionable choices there, this actually didn't seem all that unlikely. So one medical examination later, and yep, it looked like Schmidt had gonorrhea. His whole business was just, it was just jacked. It was just fully messed up. It looked like a bloody pepperoni pizza, apparently. So the naval officers that were involved in this operation, they point blank refuse. After hearing the the results of the medical examination, they say, absolutely not. We are not letting someone with gonorrhea onto a submarine. There is no way in hell we are letting that happen. And so Schmidt was stood down. He was taken off the operation. He was thrown out of Operation Pastorius and ordered back to Berlin for treatment. 
Now, all of these problems had really taken a toll on the saboteurs, many of whom already didn't like each other. I mentioned that Dash already wasn't very popular with his mates, and there were already a little bit of, you know, a fair bit of political infighting, whatever else, amongst the rest of the blokes. So they're at each other's throats. They're fighting like alley cats about anything and everything, and they're not having a good time at all. And to be honest, not too many of them actually seem to be that keen on the mission overall. There's a lot of finger pointing. There's a lot of back chat about loyalties and traitors and stuff like that. But nevertheless, the two groups of four, now that Schmidt isn't with them, it's two groups of four rather than a group of four and a group of five, they finally depart from the United, for the United States, one on the 26th and the other on the 28th of May in 1942. As for Schmidt, it turned out that he wasn't in a big rush to get back to Berlin and seek treatment. Once the submarines were, uh, were safely underway, he actually revealed that he was quite happy that his ruse to get out of going to the US had worked because Schmidt did not have gonorrhea after all. He had just deliberately injected his little fella with a soda solution that had, you know, sort of made everything look all red and aggro and inflamed and horrible there for just long enough for him to fail the medical exam. Now, the long journey across the Atlantic, I'll tell you this, it was not a comfortable one. The U-boats were already cramped and crowded with equipment and, 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 and the regular crew that were in there already as it was. So you add four blokes into these, uh, into these cramped quarters and a bunch of, you know, crates of explosives and, and bags full of clothes and whatever else there like that. And it only got a whole lot worse. Now, the roles of the saboteurs were, were, were actually kept secret from the crews on the U-boats there. And they largely just had to kind of sit around in their tiny quarters as, as the journey went on. And as the rest of the crew on the submarine went around their business, the you know, the four blokes on, on, on the respective submarines weren't really able to do anything. Just had to kind of keep themselves to themselves and, uh, you know, sort of try not to go, go mental in the, you know, in again, these enormously claustrophobic quarters that they had there like that. Um, most of the saboteurs, I will, I will mention, were just hating life, just seasick the whole time. They only found respite when the when the submarines would dive underneath the surface when things were, were calmer and quieter. Because for the, for the most part, I, I probably should mention, the U-boats actually sat along the surface. They, they, they didn't dive beneath the water and spend most of the journey underwater because on the surface they could use their diesel engines, where underneath the water they could only use their electric engines, which were obviously much slower, you know, more or less walking pace. So on the top of the, uh, on the, top of the ocean they could, they could uh, use the diesel engines and, and, and clip along, you know, at, at, a, at least a respectable rate there like that. But it also meant that the submarines would be tossed around by wind and wave uh, and, uh, and, of course, the, you know, the, these, these landlubbers aboard were, were just monstrously seasick the entire time. Now, the U-boats, they would dive regularly, either as part of a drill or because they actually, you know, detected an enemy ship and they needed to disappear. But broadly speaking, both of the journeys were, were uneventful. Uh, unfortunately for one of the crew members on the submarine that, were, that was heading to New York with Dash, uh, one of the blokes actually got really bad appendicitis and uh, the, they hadn't got a, ship doc, a ship's doctor on board to make room for these saboteurs. So uh, he had a pretty terrible time. It actually got to the point where uh, one of the other crew members might have had to uh, operate on him with, you know, sort of, uh, you know, I, I don't know, a pair of scissors and a bit of sticky tape, just whatever was lying around on the submarine there at the time. But apart from that, there wasn't, you know, the, the, whole, the whole sort of uh, journey over was more or less without incident. Now, when they arrive, it's an entirely different story. Don't even worry about that. And we're going to focus now 
on Dash and his team and their submarine, the one that uh, the one that landed or the one that you know was going to attempt to land on uh, on the coast of New York. Uh, it arrived safely on off the coast of Long Island, where today uh, that the Hamptons are, of course. Back then, very very different. There were no you know opulent manors and 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 beach houses and all that sort of stuff. It was. It was there was just a lot of scrubland. It was actually it was pretty untamed. It wasn't you know what I'm not saying it was wilderness or anything, but it was uh, you know there weren't a lot of people living out that way back then, uh, especially compared to how it is today. So, uh, but great big uh, empty stretches of beach there for them to land on. And uh, on the night of the twelfth of June, it was this was a deliberately chosen night. It was the night of the new moon, so it was uh, it was very very dark. Uh, and on top of that, uh, quite luckily for these saboteurs, there was a very thick fog that had descended across the beaches, across the across the water there, like that. Bit of a bonus for them, and so it was going to be uh, you know a lot easier for them to to sneak in under the radar, as it were, and try to get on the beach without being caught. So. The submarine, as it approaches the U.S. coastline, switches off the, uh, the, the the diesel engines there, turns on the electric ones, and very slowly, very quietly, begins to creep towards the coast. Now, uh, the captain of the submarine is going to get them as close as possible. Uh, basically, basically runs the submarine almost aground. Basically, bumps it into uh, into the into the sand underneath the water. Sort of keeps going forward and forward and forward until until the the front of the submarine hits the hits sand. Uh, and and that's when they they disembark, jump into an inflatable rubber dinghy, and two of the uh, two of the submarine crew row out the four saboteurs along with all of their gear, their you know their explosives, their clothes, their whatever else in this rubber dinghy, and and of course all all of the cash that they'd brought as well. Let's not let's not forget about that. Now before being rowed out to shore, these saboteurs before they jumped into the dinghy, I'll tell you what they did. They put on those navy uniforms that I mentioned earlier. Remember I mentioned them? They're very important. Now, why did they do this, you might ask, right? Why would these people who are attempting to sneak into the United States, why would they brand themselves as, as you know, as Nazi military, uh, military men there by putting on these uniforms when they could just dress themselves up as civilians and try to get in like that? Well, there's a very good reason. If they were captured while attempting to land in the United States from a German submarine in civilian clothing, they would have been arrested and then probably executed straight away as spies, right? Because it's very clear they were sneaking in without, without you know, insignias, flags, colours, anything else like that. Very easy to, uh, to snag them and, and immediately execute them as, as spies. However, if they were caught in naval uniforms, in military uniforms, they would have to be taken as prisoners of war and a whole different set of rules would apply to them in that case the most important one of which was of course they couldn't just be executed summarily like that so they actually put on these uniforms to protect themselves as they more or less staged a you know small invasion of the mainland united states so that's why they took those uniforms with them there however as they got into the dinghy and as they tried to row to shore, the operative word being tried here, it was another comedy of errors. Because as they tried to row to the shore, they kept losing their sense of direction. Because of this fog, because of the winds and the and, and these, these great big waves, whatever else, they couldn't find their way to the beach. They ended up going in circles for quite some time before finally... They are soaked to the skin by some huge breaking waves, which wash over them and finally push them rather und- you know rather un- rather undignified entrance to the United States. But they finally get pushed by these waves across quite a distance to the uh, to the coastline to the shoreline there, and they get out. They drag their crates onto the sand and uh, and and start to make their preparations uh, for what they're going to do next. They rush off the dinghy, of course. They've unloaded all their stuff, and they quickly drag all of these crates, all the stuff they've brought with them. Uh, to this small fence at the top of the beach 
and they start digging a hole in which to bury it all. And while they're doing that, they're about to get changed into their civilian clothes now that they've landed safely, and uh, the dinghy is about to make its way back to the submarine. And while this is happening, however, they saw, coming out through the fog, off in the distance there, a lantern light swinging through the fog towards them. Now, the US Coast Guard, the US Coast Guard was responsible for patrolling the beaches along the East Coast. As You know, there was U-boat activity that had been reported and it had picked up in the time after the United States had finally joined the war. But the patrols were pretty infrequent. They weren't a lot of them and they didn't cover, you know, the, the entire coastline all that meticulously. It was, it was pretty much a skeleton crew, to be honest, there like that. Uh, it was pretty unlikely that the saboteurs were going to run into one of these patrols, but run into one of them they did, just by coincidence. This young bloke, 20 years of age, 21 years of age he is, young bloke by the name of John Cullen. He just so happened to be on the that exact stretch of coastline where the saboteurs landed. He is wandering along, singing a song to himself, not really too worried, having a great night out in a warm, foggy evening on the, you know, in June, having a good time cruising along the beach there like that. And then he spots off in the distance these shadowy figures sort of stooped over uh, and, and changing clothes and, you know, in, in look, doing some, some stuff that is, you know, quite suspicious. You wouldn't expect to see people dressed like that on, uh, on the beach, you know, in the middle of the night here like that. So he calls out to them. He calls out to them. He asks them to explain what they're doing on a beach in the middle of the night. And uh, one of the blokes comes over to him. It's Dash who comes over to him. And he, he starts to give him a string of very bad excuses. He says, oh, no, we just lost fishermen, dressed, I might add, in by this stage in normal civilian clothing. Oh, we're fishermen. You know, he's there in his you know, suit and tie, whatever else. Oh, no, yeah, just a lost fisherman. Um, uh, and they'd lost their way. Uh, that didn't really make any sense. And so then one of the other blokes comes over and said, oh, no, we, we were out hunting for clams. We were clamming. We were, yeah, trying to, trying to find clams. And uh, this one also didn't go over too well as Cullen's sort of, you know, his eyebrows are starting to disappear into his hairline. Is that, uh, you know, he's that in, in, in that much disbelief. And it's at this point that one of the blokes turns to the other and says something to him in German. And this is where Cullen really starts to get worried because he's thinking, oh, no, what is going on here? There's these suspicious blokes landing on the beach and they're German as well. This is, this is not looking very good. And again, you've got to think on the part of the saboteurs, I mean, not really, you know, we're not on James Bond level here. You just probably, it's more like Johnny English, to be honest. Johnny German, mate, standing there and talking in German in front of this bloke from the Coast Guard who's just turned up and interrogating you. Anyway, Dash finally took charge. He, 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 he leapt forward. He grabbed uh, Cullen by the collar and physically intimidated. He said, listen, mate, listen, I don't want to have to kill you. I don't want to have to kill you. You don't, you don't want to have to die here tonight, right? And then after this threat, he then stuffed a, uh, a stack of money into Cullen's hand, a couple of hundred bucks, obviously, you know, quite a stack of cash in those days there, and told him to forget what he'd seen. But this was only after Cullen had got a good look at Dash's face and also the unusual streak of grey hair that, that uh, Dash had right through his, uh, his otherwise quite dark hair. He had a, quite a conspicuous streak of grey through it there like that. So Cullen got a really good look at his face. So... Cullen. Now, I'm going to ask you to go easy on this bloke because what he did next, you know, it's not the, it's probably not his proudest achievement, but you've got to think, put yourself in this bloke's shoes. You're 21 years of age. You try to sign up for the Marines to fight for your country. That hadn't worked. And so you join the Coast Guard and you're doing your bit for the war effort by patrolling these beaches. You're just a kid. You've got a girlfriend. You're bloody singing songs, wandering along the beach, having a good time. And all of a sudden, Four German spies loom out of the fog in front of you, threaten to kill you, 
give you money to you know to bribe and, and intimidate you and tell you to forget what you've seen. What do you do? Now, Cullen, what he did quite wisely, I would say, quite sensibly, he turned around and he ran away. He turned around, he took the money and he ran away because he was outnumbered four to one. He'd just been threatened with his life and that was enough for him. So, you know, again, I wouldn't be too hard on him. I would have probably done the same thing, you know, in his position as well. Not a, not a favorable position for anyone to be in there like that. He very sensibly, in my view, turned on his heels and he fled. He fled to the nearest Coast Guard station where, I will add, he reported exactly what he'd seen including the fact that they had attempted to bribe him. So this bloke is, you know, he did the sensible thing and he did the right thing. I think it's fair to say that. Now, his boss, who was uh, Boatswain's mate second class Carl Jennett, he didn't believe a word of it. Didn't believe a word of it. You know, he thought that Cullen was just pulling his leg and he goes, yeah, yeah, all right, all right, mate, pull the other one. It's got bells on there like that until Cullen pulled out the banknotes that had been stuffed into his hand there, $260 uh, in bribe money. And then all of a sudden, Janet realizes, well, bloody bloody hell, this bloke's telling the truth. We better do something about it here. So Janet swings into action. He hands out rifles to Cullen and the other guards that are there at the station and they head back to where the saboteurs had landed. Now, of course... There was no sign of them. Cullen and the rest of the Coast Guard, they, 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 they fanned out and searched for these blokes, but of course they were long, long gone. They found evidence that they'd been there. There was a discarded vest, a packet of cigarettes, some other stuff, all sorts of stuff all over the beach there that, show, again, pretty careless of these blokes to leave it lying around, but there was clear evidence that these people had been there. The, the cigarettes were even from Germany. So obviously Cullen wasn't just telling porky pies there like that. But then, as the fog began to clear a bit, there was indisputable evidence that all of a sudden emerged that there had been a German landing because just off the coast, just out, just a short way off into the water there, out of the fog, they spotted the silhouette of the German U-boat just offshore. It was still there. It was stuck. The captain hadn't uh, uh, driven, driven? What do you do to a submarine? Do you drive it? pilot it. I don't know. He hadn't piloted the submarine to uh, a shallow part of the water there. He'd driven it straight onto a sandbank and the tide had gone out and it had been, it had become stuck on this sandbank here. And despite the captain's best efforts to dislodge it, it hadn't worked and the U-boat was still there. The captain had run the engines at full power. This had made a huge amount of noise and a great stink of oil and diesel that alerted a lot of people. So by now, Quite a number of people are aware of the fact that there is this Nazi submarine parked just off the coast here, just to, you know, just in the water there, a little bit like that. And the cap, despite the captain's best efforts, the, the 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 tide going out had meant that there was just nothing he could do. He dumped a bunch of fuel over the side in order to, to lighten the submarine and try to escape, but nothing had worked. And finally, after you know quite a long time of trying to dislodge the the submarine, the captain of the U-boat he gave the order to get ready to scuttle and abandon the submarine. The crew dutifully laid out explosive charges all around the submarine, and they were ready to set it to blow it to high heaven there like that. The whole thing was ready to go up in flames as soon as the US authorities arrived and, uh, and, and demanded their surrender. They were going to be taken as prisoners of war, but they were going to destroy the, uh, the U-boat rather than let it to fall, fall into enemy hands. Except that never happened. 
because Cullen and the rest of the Coast Guard, of course, they zoomed back to their uh, to their, their little station there to report this to a you know a higher authority to port, report what they'd seen. A U-boat stranded just off the co- off the coast there, like that. And I, I will mention they weren't the only ones to report it. Quite a few other people who had happened to be you know, just civilians who had happened to be woken up by the sound of this diesel engine. They came they came by, they saw it, and they went back to report it as well. But because of the volume of false or misleading reports that had been made in the time before this, right, no one took this genuine support seriously. Despite the fact that all these reports were piling in, none of them were taken seriously. All of them were ignored. So as the night wore on, as the hours passed, the tide began to come back in and the U-boat realising that they weren't going to be taken prisoner after all, and realising that as every minute passed, they had a better chance of escaping as the tide came in, they redoubled their efforts to to try to dislodge themselves from this sandbank. And if you'll believe it, as a handful of incredulous witnesses looked on from the shore, the U-boat, after hours, was finally able to dislodge itself from the sandbank and slip away back out into the Atlantic once again, after several hours of being stuck there like a sitting duck on a sandbank. Unbelievable. By the time that the higher-ups had actually realised that there must be something to all these reports that were coming in, it was too late. The United States let an invading Nazi U-boat that got stuck on a sandbank for hours escape after it had been spotted and reported multiple times by multiple different people. Can you believe it? However, this kicked up an enormous fuss about this whole affair. And of course, the other authorities, the FBI, the police, the Coast Guard, they all swooped in on this area and began to examine it to see exactly what was going on there. Now, they uncovered the crates of explosives very quickly. They, unco- they uncovered all the other sabotage equipment that had you know, been hurriedly and clumsily buried by the saboteurs. And that was in addition to all the other stuff I mentioned before. All plenty of other evidence that had been left there very carelessly by these, uh, by these saboteurs there. Some socks, a hat, a vest, this packet of cigarettes that I'd been mentioned as well that very clearly uh, made it very clear that they were German. And as a result... The Coast Guard, they wanted to set up a sting operation. They filled back in the holes that had been dug up. They organised surveillance of the landing area. They assumed that the saboteurs would return soon after to retrieve their gear. But all of this was done for nothing. Because as soon as the FBI, led by, of course, its famous director, J. Edgar Hoover, as soon as they sniffed uh, sniffed a trace of sabotage, of invasion, of anything else like that, they came over, they swooped in once again, and they took over the investigation. They took full control over it. But of course, the saboteurs had disappeared. The FBI, of course, immediately began to try to track them down. But where had the saboteurs gone? And what had happened to them? As the FBI swung into action to track them down, where would their search lead them? To find out, to find the answers, to find out what happened to the saboteurs, make sure to join me next week as we conclude the story of Operation Pastorius. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is half of the story of Operation Pastorius. And of course, we'll have the thrilling conclusion to the story next week. So make sure you join me for it then as well. Going to close out the episode with all the boring housekeeping stuff. Thank you if you're one of the people who sticks through it. If you're not, goodbye, farewell, adieu, and I'll see you in a week's time. You're not missing much to be honest. Actually, no, you are missing a huge thing, huge big thing, which I'm going to say at the end to make you listen to all the rest of it. 
Halfhousehistory.net, of course. You can find all the episodes there. Please subscribe. Thank you so much to the people who have been leaving reviews on iTunes. Apparently, that is a, a very algorithmically beneficial thing for you to be doing. So thank you very much to the people who are doing that. And of course, to all the correspondents, people sending in emails. I'm absolutely swamped at the moment. I haven't had the chance to reply to people. If you need a reply to an email, please do send it in. Um, uh, please send in your email again. I'll, I'll get I'll get back to you. Uh, to the people who have sent in topics, of course, all of them have gone onto my big long list and uh, and some of them I'm hoping to get to in the coming weeks. So don't worry about that. And I, I don't ignore any emails. I read every single one. Uh, but if you do want to reply, just just you know let me know and I'll and I'll do my best to get back to you uh, uh, as soon as I can. Uh, thank you to the people supporting me on Patreon, of course. If you want to join the exalted ranks of Patreon members, you can jump over to patreon.com slash history and uh, make a pledge there. You get all sorts of uh, different benefits at different levels for that. Of course, you all know that by now. And the big exciting announcement, of course, that I've... I've and I would say the housekeeping wasn't so bad, was it? It wasn't so bad at all to stick through all of that. Donald, you've done really well. But the big exciting announcement is that... The half Ass History merch shop is now open for business. And even better, it offers free shipping on all orders. That's right. Every single order you make on half Ass History, the half Ass History shop there, zero dollars shipping. Zero pounds, zero euro, zero yen, zero zloty shipping. You're not going to pay a cent in shipping, of course. So no matter where around the world, it's going to come to you. No worries at all. Please jump over to half Ass History. It's uh, it's halfassshistory.bigcartel.net, or you can find the link at halfassshistory.net, of course. And you can order whatever you want. There's t-shirts, magnets, badges, notebooks. Uh, you can buy every, one of everything for at, at a bit of a discount as well. So uh, go over there and fill your boots. I'm very, very, very pleased, very proud that, uh, that, that half Ass History has merch that people... Uh, uh, already seem willing to buy. Already had some purchases, haven't advertised it at all, so I don't know how that works, but thank you. So, anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks for hanging out with me. I'll see you back here next week for more half assed history. Until then, of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. Uh, we've talked a lot about the Second World War, talked about Nazism a fair bit this week, and so a very relevant question here from uh, Reddit historian Agent Orange Julius, who asks, Before the Second World War, what were grammar Nazis called? <laughs>